Shakespeare put these words on the lips of Juliet in his classic tragedy, Romeo and Juliet. What's in a name? What's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell just as sweet, seemingly giving us the sense that a name doesn't really matter that it doesn't really matter one name over another name, that one name doesn't really carry any more particular meaning than another name. And that resonates in her situation, and it may resonate in most of ours as well. After all, we live in a culture where we sometimes give children names with meaning or that have meaning to us. Like in my family, we often give family names as the middle names. But then other times, we... I mean, all it really meant was we liked how it sounded. So maybe the meaning didn't really mean as much as we thought. Belinda, for, for instance, I apologize if there's a Belinda in the room, uh, means or meant at some point beautiful serpent. Beautiful serpent. Or Courtney, which I, I mean, I like these names. Courtney means, or at least at some point meant, short nose. Um, and so when you give the baby that name, it obviously fits, but you don't know will they grow into it or not. And then Kennedy, kind of a regal name. It conjures up, you know, the image or the ideas of John F. or Robert actually means helmet head, which I found striking. So we know that sometimes Juliet's assertion does make sense, and at the same time, our names are important to us. It matters to us when people remember our names. It matters to us when people forget our names. Names can be significant, and in Scripture, they almost always are. You'll note, the book of Exodus, if you look back a few verses, begins, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went into Egypt with Jacob. Each one is then given a name, but not before we hear what they have all been named by God. Israel. Israel. Those who wrestle with God. They have a name. They have a wonderful name. Israel is their God-given name, a worthy name. But I don't know if you noticed this, by the time we get to verse 15 of Exodus, they've lost it. They come into the Exodus as Israelites, a people who were actively experiencing the fulfillment of God's call upon them to be fruitful and multiply, but within just a few verses, they lose everything. They lose their status, and did you notice? They lost their name. They lost their name. There was a name change that happened between the beginning of Exodus 1 and Exodus 2. They're no longer Israelites. They're now Hebrews. Now the significance of this often goes right past us, but we really ought to pay attention to what's happening here because there is a reason why their name has changed from Israelites to Hebrews. The word Hebrew was meant to be a derogatory term. 
It was meant to be a criticizing term. This is a term that was known all over the ancient Near East to refer to marginalized people, people who have no social standing, people who own no land, people who endlessly disrupt ordered society. They are lower class folks who are often feared, excluded, and despised by the majority. In Thailand, the government there could have easily called, while we were working with people there at UHDP, the Palong Hill Tribe people from Myanmar, Hebrews. Or in our own country, we know that immigrants and refugees are often treated as Hebrews. Hebrews are people without status. Hebrews are people without influence. Hebrews is not even really a name. In fact, you might say that this is the moment, the moment these people became Hebrews was the moment they lost their name. The moment their name, Israel, was replaced with no name at all. In Exodus chapter 1, the people of Israel became the no-names of their society. In Exodus chapter 1, the God of Israel became the God of the no-names. In Exodus 1, the powers that be in Egypt decided it was time to begin ridding the land of the no-names. Did you notice this? It was a, really an insane strategy, a horrible one. The first step in the strategy was slavery, and the second step was genocide. And this is where it starts to really get interesting. Really get interesting because actually some of the rumblings of God's redemption begin to come out of their suffering here. We see it in the troubling methods of Egypt's insane dictator who first decides that his country that is being built now on the back of these marginalized men the country that is being built now and held together by these marginalized men, something tells him that the best way to deal with them is to wipe them out. Get them out of here. And secondly, the Pharaoh seems to think, and this is interesting too, that he'll accomplish this task of wiping out the Hebrews by wiping out the men, but leaving the women. Look at verse 15. The king tells the Hebrew midwives, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Now this is appalling. It's not good in a moral way, but it's also not a very good plan strategically either. And we know this. Because if you're looking to wipe out the power center of a people, we all know where the power and influence really lies, don't we? You may remember the movie Big Fat Greek Wedding. My Big Fat Greek Wedding, I hear there's going to be another um, sequel that's coming out in that movie. We see a family that has kind of a supposed old world hierarchical male-female kind of hierarchy structure. And there's this argument going on in anticipation of the wedding where Tula is telling her mother she wished her, things, her father would do things differently. But he's so stubborn and, and he fo she follows this with, but I guess that's just the way it goes. Because man's the head of the house, right? And her mother responds, let me tell you something, Tula. 
The man may be the head, but the woman is the neck. And she can turn the head any way she wants. There's this fantastical idea like this and fantastical ideas like this floating around everywhere, even today, even in spirituality. There is this crazy idea that has been floating around, at least since I was younger, that the men are the movers and shakers of spirituality. But this is not what I have observed. This is not what I grew up observing. Now, what I grew up observing is if there were no women in the church where I grew up, the whole thing would have been reduced to an annual fish fry. Without the men, the church could have survived. Without the women, there probably wouldn't be anything left. But sometimes in life and history, we tell ourselves otherwise, just like this Egyptian pharaoh did. He didn't believe the women were a threat. He didn't believe the women had the ability to thwart his authority. He didn't believe the women, the lowliest part of this group of no-names in their society, was capable of saving the no-names from his wrath. But he was wrong. The text tells us that the midwives feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, but instead they let the boys live. And when the Pharaoh asked them about it, they made up a story about how the Hebrew women were more vigorous in childbirth than the Egyptian women. And they just couldn't make it in time to do anything with the boys, which is one of my favorite lines in all of Scripture. <laughs> what does that look like? Somebody explain that to me later. It's too vigorous. But notice this, because you can get kind of caught up in that moment and miss the real punch of the moment. The Hebrew midwives disobeyed the Pharaoh, then they lied to him about it, and the text says that because they did this, God was kind to them and blessed them. Now, did, you, did that hit you? How'd that hit you? The women did something that was illegal. They then lied to the authorities about doing it, and this was celebrated by God. Now, isn't that interesting? It's actually the attitude toward truth-telling that we see through much of the Old Testament. Now, many of us would swear that the Old Testament has the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments require us to always tell the truth in any and every situation, but that's not exactly what's going on there. The Ten Commandments do require us to give a truthful testimony in court. But the Old Testament as a whole seems to see truth-telling as part of a broader, truthful relationship. So that where there is a truthful relationship between people, telling the truth is part of that relationship. And where there is no truthful relationship, it does not isolate truth-telling as an obligation. Now, that, does that make sense? Here's how it comes down right here. When powerful people are oppressing powerless people in Scripture, the powerless people are not obliged to tell the truth to their oppressors. Revering the authorities, Romans 13, should be a way of revering God. But when authorities are requiring murder and oppression, all bets are off. This is kind of difficult to grapple with, philosophically, ethically, but not really practically, 
Because we all have a sense about this when real life is happening. When real life is happening all around us and within us and among us, we all have this sense of what truth is even when it may not look exactly like truth. We have kind of an instinct for it, don't we? We sense it. Booker T. Washington was born in slavery, you know, but he was the first principal of a college in Tuskegee, Alabama, and was sometimes called the President of Black America. Washington tells this story about a black lawyer fleeing a lynch mob and coming to his door for rescue. And Washington then gave him protection and helped him escape, but then when the authorities came to Booker T. Washington, he denied that he had ever helped him. Is that okay? His lie in that situation may have saved a college campus from destruction and saved several men and women from being lynched. Would God be okay with that? Was that truthful in its own way? This is how the good work of God is often moved forward, we see in Scripture. God often moves truth forward through small acts of defiant faithfulness from people like the midwives and the mothers in this story today. The meditation that you saw on the front of your worship guide is kind of in this spirit. There's this email from Ed Chastine that I dug up. Don't worry, it was a group email. Did you ever get one of those emails? I got a few of them. I have them. If you ever want it, I've got some books too if you want those as well. But in the quote from one of Ed's emails, he references what chaos theory has called the butterfly effect. You've heard us talk about that before here. The butterfly effect says that even the small flapping of a butterfly's wings in one place can affect air current eventually in another place that could cause or prevent a hurricane. In other words, small things can have large consequences, large impact, even if we don't even if we don't sense that they will. And isn't that what we see here in this story with these women as well? What did they do? What did they do? They, all they did, right, they simply chose to choose life for their boys in spite of the possible consequences of doing so. And why did they do it? Well, probably because of love, but the text tells us that specifically they did it because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh's, or the authority of the day. And what was it that they were trying to accomplish? Honestly, probably just a little bit of love. Probably just a little bit of, of life. They were probably just trying to do the next right thing. That's how it so often goes. But I can tell you one thing I'm pretty sure they weren't trying to accomplish. I'm pretty certain there's one thing that was not in their minds that they were not trying to accomplish in this moment when they did what they did. And that is, I'm pretty sure they weren't trying to accomplish an exodus. I'm pretty sure they weren't trying to accomplish a mutiny. I'm surely true that they weren't trying to accomplish an overthrow not of the government, not in this situation, because they wouldn't have been able to conceive that their little actions could have really changed anything for their people. 
Just as often we can't conceive how our little actions might really make an impact on people either. It's logic like this, you know, that makes it difficult for us to do things like show up and vote, or recycle, or plant a garden, or carpool for the sake of the environment, or go on a mission trip, or write our congressperson. These are all good things, right? But what difference will it really make? What will my contribution really impact? What will my contribution, my little contribution, really affect? It's this kind of logic that makes it difficult for us to engage regularly in things like spiritual disciplines, going to church, prayer, participating in a community group. What's really going to matter if I take time to study Scripture with others? What does it matter if I wake up a bit early to spend focused time with God or to pray, intercede on someone else's behalf? What does it matter if I write that note of encouragement or gratitude What does it matter if I give to a good cause? What does it really matter if I serve Jesus in my small ways or if I support my church in the ways God has called me to? How might my little effort really change anything for the larger good? The answer to that is, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. All I know is that some people believe that when a butterfly flaps its wings in one place, it can cause or prevent a hurricane in another. All I know is that some people believe that against all odds, sharing stories or standing up to injustice in subtle ways or doing things like refusing to move to the back of a bus can make a difference. All I know is that some people believe that faith, like a mustard seed, As little expressions of it, tiny ones that you can barely see, can possibly move a mountain or even part a sea. Now, I'm not sure if these women believe this. After all, they were just mothers, they were just midwives, they were just Hebrews, they were just no names, they were just women in this society by all practical standards, the lowest of the low. No, the only thing they probably thought they could deliver in this story of deliverance was a baby. And then they had this wild notion that once it was delivered, they could keep it alive against all odds. How did they do it? By making up stories by putting babies in baskets, by figuring out how to subtly deceive the Pharaoh. They did what mothers do. They did what they needed to do to keep their children alive. That's all. They weren't trying to deliver a nation from evil. They just wanted to deliver a few babies from it. And what was the result? Well, you know, they left behind a bit of a legacy, I guess probably the only one they were really trying to leave behind. They were deliverers. And in this larger story about deliverance, naming that is significant. They were deliverers. It's significant for us to name that. And speaking of naming, did you notice in the story the name of the Pharaoh? 
Did you notice the name of the king of Egypt? No? It's because it's not there. It's not given. Actually, only a few names are. The only names mentioned in this story are the names of the deliverers. The ones who God used to participate in deliverance. The two Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Puah, the biblical authors seem to think they were worthy of names. The mother who put her little baby in a basket, we learn her name later, Jochebed. And the little baby boy in that basket, we actually learn his name too, don't we? Moses. And by the time this book ends, we'll see that little boy grow up. We'll see that little boy spend some time in the desert, notice God in a bush, deliver his people from slavery. Yes, this boy and these people are destined for big things. They are destined for deliverance. By the end of this book, we know that God used this little boy to deliver his people. By the end of this book, we know that Moses would be their deliverer. Though now we also know that he wasn't the only one.